So, first full day, silence of the schedule. I always feel like we should do roll call or just check, are you all still here? Anyone kind of change their mind and think they could do something else with these six weeks or three months? But I think you're all still here. It's a bit hard to tell. I hope today was okay. Hope the schedule was okay. Hope the flow of the day was okay. Because guess what? (laughs) We've got another 43 or 87 more in store. So this is kind of it for the basic flow of our days. Of course, there'll be variations, but it's pretty simple here. I make a collection of cartoons on meditation and you can tell it's getting more and more mainstream because my collection is growing. There's more of them and one I like, they're often uh, in a gloomy kind of zendo, very dark, you know, bare, bare building, bare room, robed figures in the gloom and this smaller one is leaning over to obviously the older one and has asked a question and the reply from the older one comes back. Nothing happens next. This is it. (laughs) So, this is it. And it is a little unusual, right? We already said that. To to sit and walk all these hours in silence, to eat our meals in silence with 80 other people, to spend this long without uh, communicating. You know, this beautiful ritual that many of you participated in of giving up that lifeline, that umbilical cord to friends, family, the rest of the world, we give that up when we come here. So it's really unusual and against the stream of the connectedness of so much of society. And often that's perhaps the thing that we're most anxious about, especially if this length of retreat is new for you, but it usually comes to be the thing we most appreciate is just that Oh, it's like someone turning down the volume on this cacophony of input, the barrage of information and, and things calling for your attention. Because we're so connected, right, these days. I mean, it's just ongoing and so used to in any spare moment, and you'll see it every bus stop, on every train, on any moment that there's a lull in a conversation, Someone will pull out a device, or maybe they never put it away, you know, and it's just recording every experience, every meal, every thought, you know, on Facebook or whatever. It's like, if it doesn't get recorded, is it real? Did it really happen? You know, if people don't know what I was thinking or feeling or eating that day, here we let that all go and just start to trust this inward turning, this inner connection that can deepen and deepen in our time here. People actually use devices so much these days. I mean, you, you know all these kind of statistics probably. I, I read one according to the Kaiser Family Foundation, eight to 18 year olds spend an average of seven and a half hours a day using entertainment media devices of some kind. That's a big chunk of the day. I mean, there's even syndromes now, right? Smartphone neck, you know, people. <laughs> looking down so much and getting themselves out of whack. And it leads to the opposite of mindfulness, right? All these accidents that you see, lots of videos of people, you know, 
falling into holes and in stepping off curbs and into traffic and certainly driving. I mean, it's kind of crazy. And this is even infiltrated into my cartoon collection. So there's a subset <laughs> of meditation cartoons that's the guru uh, section. And the guru section always has a few uh, main uh, aspects to it. There's a mountain, you know, triangle with a the snow. There's a, a bearded figure, usually in a kind of loincloth in front of a cave. And the seeker is usually just kind of climbing, putting his her head over the edge. And so there's the scenario, the seeker with the backpack, you know, climbing up the mountain, just approaching the guru. And in this one, the guru has got the hand up like this, <laughs> and he's looking on his cell phone. It's like, hold on, get to you later. So it's everywhere, right? Here we're doing something completely different. I keep saying this, but it's really, it's really radical, right? even more so these days. In the time of the Buddha, it was somewhat radical to do this, but if you know anything of those stories, it was a time of wanderers, of ascetics, and people often leaving the home life for the homeless life was quite common. It's not so much here to take six weeks or three months of your life. And one of the reasons people don't think of doing this so much is because you have to look at your mind. And minds are pretty crazy places, right? You start to slow down and pay attention to what's going on there in that frenzy of thinking and feeling and reacting. And the mind has no shame. It will go to any length to distract you and keep you amused or judgmental or fearful or whatever your habits are. Just this sort of perpetuation of conditioning. And I love what Greg said last night, something like, you didn't get issued a different mind-body when you walked in here. You know, it's the same old one. You brought it with you, and it's a result of your actions, your conditioning, your situation, your community, your family. It's all here with you. This is what we work with. I saw this line from Theodore Roosevelt. He said, If you could kick the person in the pants responsible for most of your trouble, you wouldn't sit for a month. So don't do that here, because we need you to be able to sit. Here we're making friends with ourselves. We're turning to look at this somewhat crazy mind. I mean, it all feels a little crazy, doesn't it? Yeah, 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 what about this, what about that? We all have a similar kind of mind, and we're making friends with that. We're exploring it. We're getting to know that mind and actually perhaps redirecting it. We'll talk more about that. And this is not easy. Not easy to do. Retreats aren't easy. Uh, Joseph Goldstein came over for, I don't know whether it was lunch or the evening meal, and he was just saying he was so touched. He's, you probably know, not teaching this half, but he'll be here for the second half. So he said, I I have a little perspective on the retreat. He said, I'm so touched that this many people want to come and do this for this long. He was very sincere. And remember we said he's done 41 or 42 of these, but still really touched by the sincerity of intention that you're all bringing. But it's difficult, right, to, to let everything go, to renounce the world for this time, to all of the busyness and the... Uh, 
things that you usually are so involved with and be here in this simple container of retreat space. But we learn how to be here. You know, you've all been on retreats before, but many of you are perhaps new to long retreat practice. It's an art form to learn how to do long retreats. It took me a long time. And the biggest thing I would say is take it easy a little. Be kind to yourself. Don't try and push, especially in these early days of having some ideal and objective of what it should look like and what a good yogi is. That's just dukkha. That's suffering. Just be really gentle, but persistent. Gentle, but persistent. And so we start paying attention. And the main thing we're paying attention to, yes, we watch what the body does, but it's the mind, right? We're practicing mindfulness. I was thinking about that. It's mindful, a mind full of mind, paying attention to this mind so we know what it's doing. And we have this sincerity of intention, be mindful, know what's happening, be present. What happens? Right? Back, forward, future, past, last moment, next year. You know, how many of you have already on this first day started planning your next retreat and what you'll bring, you know, that you didn't bring to this retreat? It's endless, right? So don't judge that. That's what the mind does. Really, again, be gentle. And we'll be talking about this over and over again. You can't force mindfulness. You can't determine to be mindful. All you can do is when you wake up, and you're present again, be willing to be there in that moment and recognize it. That's all you can do. And the secret is it's all you need to do. You just need to do it over and over again, a hundred, a thousand times a day, maybe even in a sitting, to do that over and over again. Just be willing to be there when you wake up and you're mindful again, when you're, again, connecting to what's happening right now. This is the heart of our practice. And we're practicing, as I've said, mindfulness. And I'm sure you know, mindfulness, it's hip right now. It didn't used to be hip, but now it is. You know, it's, I keep saying it's mainstream, and my friends who are really mainstream go, Sally, it's not mainstream. It might be sort of getting out there a little, but it's still not, you know, literally mainstream. But it's amazing, right? Mindfulness in everything. Mindfulness in education, in psychotherapy, in stress reduction, in prisons, in schools, in in, uh, healthcare, in the workforce. It's fabulous. It's amazing what is happening in sports. So many of the big sports teams have meditation teachers. Who was I just reading? Oh, uh, Djokovic. What's his name? What's his first name? Novak Djokovic, the tennis player practices yoga and meditation, goes to Buddhist meditation centers, helps him stay connected. So it's really becoming much more accessible, available. It's great, a doorway for people to come to know themselves. So it's so pervasive, and especially for us here, we kind of know, right? You're here to practice mindfulness. It's a mindfulness retreat. What is mindfulness? Should be a simple question, right? What is mindfulness? Let you in on some secrets here. 
many debates about what that is. Certainly different schools of Buddhism have different ideas. Even teachers within this tradition have different understandings of what mindfulness is. And actually, I know for myself, I keep refining, changing what my understanding of mindfulness is. The Pali word here is sati, S-A-T-I, and it has a root in to remember. So it's interesting to bring that into our understanding of what mindfulness means, because in some ways it's easy to be mindful, it's just hard to remember to be mindful. And it's really about this sort of recollection, recollecting ourselves, recollecting what we're doing, knowing what we're doing. This is really important. But let, I'll, I'll actually ask you to call out, what, what is mindfulness? What's a definition of mindfulness? Anyone willing to share? What is mindfulness? It's not a trick question. <laughs> yeah. Compassionate awareness. Compassionate awareness. Lovely. Any other definitions? Thoughts? Being present without attachment or aversion. Yes. Memory of a virtuous object of attention. Memory of a virtuous object of attention. You guys are giving really good definitions, actually. They're all really good because usually what people say are just being aware or accepting what is, knowing what's happening. And often I'll respond to those answers, well, a dog, you could defi- say a dog was doing that. A dog is very aware, right? It's very interested in what's happening. It's not judging what's happening. But because people added things like the compassionate, the, the virtuous, and I forget the word used, uh, non-attachment or aversion, you brought in the wisdom and compassion piece, which is what makes this really mindfulness. Mindfulness, maybe it's mindfulness with a capital M, but what it, what I take, uh, one of the definitions, I, the simple definition that I like to s- start with, so as I said, it, the essence is being in the moment, accepting. It's an inner connected, an inner knowing and an outer connectedness knowing what's happening, but knowing that you know there's a little bit of reflection in there that a dog or a squirrel or a chipmunk doesn't have. It's like mindfulness as a function of mind that we can be aware of and cultivate. We can actually train in mindfulness. So it's some kind of recognition, attention like that. But again, as some of you brought in, with right understanding, it brings in the wisdom aspect. So many of you have your eyes open, so you're seeing, but did you know you were seeing? Now I mention it, you probably go, yeah, but a moment before, was that kind of conscious for you? Probably not. We get so absorbed into what's out there, into the object, that we're not in that slight reflective state of aware that we're seeing. So just feel that subtle difference. Again, an exercise, if you wish, just touch your hands together lightly. And as soon as you do that, right, you know that touch, that sensation, because I've directed you to it. Right? Very simple. That's the essence of mindfulness. 
that simple, that easy, that accessible. But the difference is, because I directed you to it, you're really conscious that you were doing that, right? Feeling those sensations. This is the kind of mindfulness that we'll be pointing to. But that's just the foundation of the practice, because right mindfulness as a path factor, and again, you'll, many of you know this, Buddha loved lists, lists within lists, lists that build on lists, Four Noble Truths, the Fourth Noble Truth, the Eightfold Path, one of the path factors, or each of the path factors is preceded by this word Samma in Pali, which means true or uh, whole or perfected or leading onward or leading to liberation. Sometimes we translate it as right or wise. So for mindfulness, Samasati, right, mindfulness, is more complex than just knowing that your hands are touching. It actually brings these aspects that people mentioned um, because, as I said, it's conducive to liberation, meaning it has some wisdom in it. So the purpose, or you could even say the power of mindfulness, especially samasati, is that it develops wholesome qualities. It lets us clearly see and let go, decrease unwholesome ones, and it helps us to develop insight. This is the seeing clearly of vipassana, often on a personal level, understanding ourselves, so powerful, healing, important, opening, but certainly on an impersonal level. Again, a lot of this that I'm mentioning tonight we'll talk about at length in other talks, things like the three characteristics or marks of existence, that things are impermanent, unsatisfactory, that there's nothing solid at the core or center of experience. Samasati helps us see that, points us towards seeing that, is conducive to seeing that. One of our teach some a teacher that many of us have practiced with is Saido Utejaniya. Um, and he loves talking about mindfulness, especially what he calls right mindfulness. And one of actually a whole book that he's written is called Awareness Alone is Not Enough. And he's translating uh, sati, mindfulness, here. Mindfulness alone is not enough. And what he keeps saying is it needs this wisdom to be functioning. It needs an awareness of what is happening in this moment of mindfulness, the context of this moment. You know, yes, just touching the hands, that's simple. But some of you liked it, some of you didn't like it, some of you were like, why is she asking me to do that? Some of you felt that was too tiring or whatever, you know. All of that, that's the field of mindfulness. So Saido Tejaniya will say things like, the basic objective of meditation is to improve the quality of the mind. It's a mind training. The work of awareness is just to know. The work of wisdom is to differentiate between what is skillful and unskillful. It says that in this training, as the wisdom deepens, wisdom inclines towards the good but is not attached to it. It shies away from what is not good but has no aversion to it. Wisdom recognizes the differences between skillful and unskillful and clearly sees the undesirability of the unskillful. So a whole training that happens through this paying attention 
that's not what happens with a dog. A dog might get better at finding a toy or, you know, tracking sense, but this kind of learning is so important. So we use a lot the mindfulness of our inner experience to develop this wisdom, to understand ourselves. The more we understand ourselves, the more connected we feel to ourselves, the more we can understand and connect to others, and the more we can understand and connect to the world, to our communities, families. So it's not a a selfish or isolating practice. It's really one that through the going in actually enables us to really be present when we're in community, out in the world. So we learn from our own experience, and that's so important in this practice. We're not going to be telling you what kind of experience to have. All we're going to be asking you to do is to pay attention and notice what's happening over and over again. I love to read this poem from Mary Oliver because it's called Mindful. Every day I see or hear something that more or less kills me with delight, that leaves me like a needle in the haystack of light. It was what I was born for, to look, to listen, to lose myself inside this soft world, to instruct myself over and over in joy and acclamation. Nor am I talking about the exceptional, the fearful, the dreadful, the very extravagant, but of the ordinary, the common, the very drab, the daily presentations. O good scholar, I say to myself, how can you help but grow wise with such teachings as these, the untrimmable light of the world, the ocean shine, the prayers that are made out of grass. And I love, you know, I don't know if she's a practitioner. I think she might. She's certainly of some kind. But to lose myself inside this soft world, I take that to be our inner experience, our mindfulness inwardly. And not, you know, the big, extravagant, cathartic experiences, but the common, the drab, the daily presentations. This moment-to-moment is so precious because each moment is unique. How can you help but grow wise with such teachings as these, if we pay attention? So the context within which this experience is happening is the field of our mindfulness practice. And I call it one way to look at this, to understand this context is to, I call it the three times. The most important one, this time, right? That's why the body, the breath are so good. There's nowhere else they can be. You can kind of have a memory of how it was yesterday or how you think it might be. But if you're connected, it's here, right? This moment, this breath. Jack Cornville has this great line. I don't know if you see it, saw it. I think it's true. He said, you know, in Las Vegas, in the casinos, they have signs. You have to be present to win. And it's like that in mindfulness, too. Um, you have to be here. That's the starting point. But what happens, as I said, we get lost, right? The mind goes into some thought, some fantasy, some projection, judging, worrying, past, future, does what it does. Remembering, worrying, these, these strong habits of mind. At some point, 
hopefully, you'll wake up and you'll go, oh, mindfulness, what's happening? Meant to be retreat, sitting, you know, IMS, three months, whatever, you know, instant of connection that you have. Be grateful for that. Don't beat yourself up, judge yourself for being lost, even if it was a whole day, maybe it was just five minutes or one, you know, 30 seconds. Don't beat yourself up, however long it would be grateful that you've come back, that you're present, that you're here. Then we can ask these questions that we'll invite you to over and over again. What am I aware of right now? What's happening? What's it like? So you just kind of start again. You, you take the temperature. You connect with what's predominant, what you're interested in, what catches your attention. What, it, what is it like? And then particularly, how are you relating to that? And the shorthand is greed, aversion, delusion. Sorry to say, most of our mind, many of our mind movements can be filed under one of those. Holding on to something, pushing something away, not sure what's happening. I mean, the good news is usually, I think Greg already, Greg already said this, if you ask, am I aware? Pretty guaranteed you can say yes, because you had the wherewithal to ask the question, right? So it's a great question to ask. You get this positive reinforcement. Yes, I'm aware. Now I'm not. No, 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 I am. No, no, yeah. But you get that positive reinforcement. But to really take an interest in what's happening then. What, what, and even an interest in it, and this is this next time, is the past time. What was happening? And how was I relating to that? You don't have to do a big, you know, I was thinking of this and that, you know, that kind of jigsaw puzzle you put together of how you got here. Don't need to do that. You know in a moment you were thinking about work or Emily or lunch or your knee aching or whatever it was. Just a snapshot in a moment. And what was that relationship? Again, holding on, pushing away, or were you really spacing out in some fantasy, some la-la land? We can know that pretty quickly. And then we respond to that. We bring this right mindfulness to that and we either say, I'm back in, whatever it was, I liked it, I'm going, you know, I know I should be mindful, but I'd rather space out and be out of here. Sometimes we make that choice, right? Be honest, you do. Sometimes we do. But sometimes we take a breath and we recalibrate and we settle back down, and there's calm. So we notice what happens next, out of the choice we make. So these are the three times. In the, it's not, you know, there's never actually that we're in the future, but we've made a choice, and we see what happened. We kind of track. So we're in the moment, we have a, just a, a little bit looking back, you know, what was I thinking about? What was, what was the kind of thought, or the object of thought, a focus of attention. We make this, we have this moment, the powerful thing about mindfulness is it gives us this choice point, this little gap. Make this choice, what happens next? These are the three times. And so we can track a little, you know, we make these choices over and over again. We're acting out of intention over and over again. Let's make the intentions conscious and then see. Is it going in the direction I want to go? Is the mindfulness becoming more continuous? 
Am I, you know, letting go of this story that's really causing me a lot of anxiety? Or am I really putting fuel on the fire? So we track that. And when I say the direction we want to go, you know, it's not like this is the way you should be going. It's not like a railway track. It's a compass bearing. And your compasses are very flexible. You know, if you hold them, they're always moving. But you're just setting an intention out of your intention. Are we heading in the right direction? This is the heart of our practice, this balancing, this negotiating, this bringing clarity into the moment. We will be repeating these kind of instructions ad nauseum over and over again on the retreat. This is the middle way, you know, where we land in the present moment, make wise choices. There's a story that someone tells about practicing with Ajahn Chah, one of the great um, lineage holders, meditation masters of our tradition, uh, Thai meditation master. And they practiced with him for some time, heard him giving a lot of instructions to people and got really angry with him and finally confronted him and said, you know, Ajahn, all these different people come and you, you tell them completely different things. Some people you tell do this and some people you tell do that. You tell them the exact opposite. You know, it's confusing. What's the right thing to do? And Ajahn Chah said, it's very simple. I see some people veering off to the left and I say, go right, go right. Some people veering off to the right, I say, go left, go left. And it's just that simple. It's easy to say, isn't it? But, but that's the intention. It's just... You know, there's no rigid, direct, one only way, but we're always reorienting, always finding our way out of this sincerity of intention of wanting to wake up, wanting to decrease the suffering. And the challenge, of course, is how to do that without adding more aversion and more greed. You know, I want that, I don't want this. Like, we have to bring the wisdom to that response. And that's why we call it practice, because we get lots of practice and we need lots of practice to be able to do this. It's a training. It really is. It's why we need really this length of time to learn how to do this. So this is samasati, right or wise mindfulness. It brings the wisdom in into this choice point, into this moment. This is really the power of mindfulness. And it leads to what's called satipanya. So we had uh, samasati, right mindfulness, satipanya, mindfulness wisdom. And some teachers like Ajahn Buddhadasa, he would never talk about sati without saying satipanya because he felt it was essential that we bring the wisdom in to the practice. Utejaniya talks about awareness wisdom, using awareness to translate sati. Sati panya naturally lets go, knows that we can't hold on to things, knows that that's uh, we, identifying, holding on um, is going to lead to suffering. So it naturally balances, it naturally lets go, it naturally brings in the equanimity. So again, as I said, this is this key functioning of mindfulness to reduce the hindrances and to increase the wholesome states. So another definition of mindfulness could be a training to direct mental energy 
into the present moment and to clear seeing. Clear seeing is a, you could say another translation of vipassana. Vipassana means to see clearly, to see into. So we learn to appreciate, to land in the present moment again and again and want to be here rather than preferring our fantasies. Again, my cartoon collection, one of my favorite philosopher, Calvin and Hobbes, where Calvin is the small boy and Hobbes the imaginary tiger. He's the philosopher. Calvin, I guess, is, what is it, the id or the ego? (laughs) I don't know what. Anyway, Calvin and Hobbes, a small boy with his imaginary tiger, and they're climbing a tree. And Calvin is saying, I suppose the secret to happiness is learning to appreciate the moment, climbing higher in the tree. I, for example, take great pleasure in being right here, right now, doing what we're doing. And Calvin the tiger says, of course, you're supposed to be at school. (laughs) Calvin says, I couldn't appreciate those moments. That's our tactic, right? You know, we want the moment that's good. You know, we want to manipulate the moment to have it be the right moment. This moment, perfect just as it is. Another cartoon, the pet calendar. It's got a dog and a cat looking at one of those calendars where you tear off a page. So the dog has one in his paw and it says now. And the one they're looking at says now. It's the pet calendar. So this choice point is so powerful uh, in our practice. It's really what we practice for. It's really what we practice for, to see clearly and have a wise response. This is how all of our habits get changed and how we start to learn to relate to our thoughts wisely because it's not about not thinking. You know, it's not about becoming blank the mind will think. It's a sense organ. It's, it's, it's functioning is to think and to feel and to evaluate. We need our minds. We need to think. But we need to find a different relationship to them where they're not the boss of us, the master, where we're actually, uh, it's, a, it's a simpatico relationship with the thinking mind. And so, as I said, we start tracking our experience. If I dwell on these kind of thoughts, this is where I end up. If I start grinding my teeth about the work situation that I left uncompleted that's really driving me crazy, I'll get, you know, an irritable stomach and and, and tense in the face and anxiety will arise, right? If I let go, if I realize there's nothing I can do right now, then maybe peace or calm or acceptance will come. So we ask these questions. What am I aware? What am I aware of? What's happening? And how am I relating to it? So someone mentioned or was asking this morning about when there's restlessness in walking, to walk fast, walk slow, you know, neither of those works, what's the third alternative? And I think Greg said is to be aware of the restlessness itself. That's the object. And not just the restlessness, how you're relating to the restlessness. Because usually, like, we don't like it, shouldn't be here, you know, means I'm not present or a good yogi or, you know, whatever. We're judging it. That's really important to notice. 
So we keep tracking um, what's happening. We don't have to go overboard with this kind of questioning. It's just really simple to direct us to more clearly know what's happening. And then connect with the body. How is the body being impacted? Such a great sounding board for what's happening for us. Is there tension? Is there tightness? Is there stiffness? Is there, you know, complete sort of sloth and torpor? Knowing that. Be curious if you find that there's negative mind states that are growing of aversion or irritation or judging. You're feeding it. They're not, you know, it might feel like they're being poured in from outer space, but it's not happening that way. You are feeding them. You brought them with you or they've arisen from these conditions and you're feeding them. We can know that. We also need to know, and we'll talk a lot more about this too, when the positive ones are being cultivated. Joy or calm or equanimity, happiness, renunciation. Beautiful qualities will get cultivated. To notice those, they're really important. And this is, again, a classic practice. Starving the hindrances, feeding the wholesome factors. Again, over and over again. So what I really am hoping I'm pointing to tonight is that this practice is not passive. When we think of mindfulness as just being aware of what's happening, accepting what's happening, knowing what's happening, there can be a kind of passivity to that. I call it lump on a log practice. Oh, I'm just sleepy, that's what's happening, or I'm really angry, but I'm in touch with it, I'm angry, I'm angry. That's, you know, that's not conducive to more wholesome states of mind. It's not a passive practice. We start from that place of connection of knowing what's happening, of acceptance. This is always where we need to start. But then we bring, and again, we'll probably use these words over and over again, a relaxed, interested, kind awareness to the experience. Often that's enough to do the balancing that I've been talking about. It's amazing the power of mindfulness in and of itself to just bring things into... uh, 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 and it's not that it has to, you know, be all smooth and easy, but that we can connect with it without too much aversion, too much resistance. Just the mindfulness sometimes can do that. But then we need to, if that's not enough, bring our intelligence in, our wisdom, our skill in. What's a wise response here? We can investigate it, the kind of questioning that I was just talking about. And sometimes it can, investigation, Dhammavichaya, can be literally questions. You know, what was I thinking about or what am I paying attention to? Sometimes it's just a deeper connection, this intimacy with experience. Sometimes we need to use antidotes. We need to bring in loving kindness, the metta practice that we'll teach in a couple of days. Many of you may know it already to just bring some kindness and some softness in. May I relax or be safe here? May I open to this? May I be kind? Sometimes we need to go to something completely neutral like sounds or open the eyes and the visual field. So we learn how to do that. We learn how to balance our energies. If what we're really struggling with is a lot of dullness and sleepiness, how to bring up 
more alertness, more energy, more interest. If we're really hyper and, and anxious, how to use the breath, the body, our movements to bring a sense of calm or ease. We learn how to do that. And we learn that it's possible. And that's really the big learning, that it's possible. And out of that learning, we start to understand that it's not what's happening that's important. Again, we'll say this over and over again. Not what's happening. It's how you're relating to it. Saito Tejaniya will say something like, what's happening is never a problem if we're mindful of it. And you might say it's all very well for him to say, if my knee's falling off, you know, that's a problem. But really, truly, it's our aversion to that. You can always move, stand, you know, take care of, you're not, you know, this isn't to power through difficult physical experiences or even mental, emotional ones. It's to learn how to take care of yourself, but to learn that we can respond wisely to these. And it's bringing in this sense of intelligence, of wisdom. Again, Saito objects do not meditate. It is the mind that meditates. That's why meditation is called mind work and why you need to know about the mind. So we're not training here to be good breathers. You're not going to get a certificate at the end, a million and two breaths. There you go. Good work. You're not here to learn everything there is to know about your knee pain. You know, I've explored it minutely. Or to get rid of your knee pain. How many times do you think, oh, it's not working. I was mindful of it and it didn't go away, right? I mustn't have been mindful enough. We're learning to notice what's happening and our attitude to that and to bring the wisdom in there. The body will do what it does. The back will ache, the jaw will be tight, the throat will clench. Can we know that and not add the second arrow, the why me, it shouldn't be happening, the aversion? We're not training the object. We're training the mind. And when we say mind, we include the heart, chitta, mind, heart. It's all the emotional responses as well. We're training our attention. We're training ourselves to pay attention. This is the heart and the art of this practice. And out of that, a wise response. So really, this mindfulness is a reprogramming. Seriously. You know, if you think of your mind a bit like, and it's not only a bit like, a computer, you know, you get your brand new computer, your 2015 model or whatever it is, even your phone, you know, and it's bright and shiny and it goes really fast and everything's flashy and glitzy and it does everything you want and it's exciting and new. And then what happens? You know, you keep adding stuff to it, all these programs and apps, and it gets fuller and fuller, and you can't find things anymore, and it slows down, and it kind of hangs up, and it, it just doesn't do what it does. I had one of these, you know, my last computer, and I, I saw one of these programs on the internet, you know, uh, tune up utilities, make your computer run faster, every, we'll fix everything. You're like, oh, great, it's possible. Well, they, they have the answer. And so download and run. It said, we fixed 523 problems and repaired 1,000 broken links and improved this. I'm like, great. It doesn't seem any different. But it feels better, right, to know that you've, it's like spring cleaning. You've cleaned it up. But 
it was a little better, just, you know, you hope that it's going to be greatly better. Hopefully, six weeks or three months, it's a real reprogramming because your mind is just like your computer, you know, and especially one that's old or got a lot of malware, not malware, hopefully not malware. (laughs) That's really bad, but, you know, getting a bit kludgy, right? All of these old programs you don't even use anymore. We accumulate them, right, over time. And we get up in the morning boom, turn, turn the on switch, and all of those old programs, they just load right up. All our views and opinions and beliefs and projections, we don't even realize they're happening. They're so intimate, so close to us, we don't even recognize that they've loaded up again. And we operate out of them. There's our worldview. The power of this practice is starting to see that, to see projections and perceptions for what they are, to realize that we don't need to believe everything that we think. Just because we think it doesn't mean it's true. This is a really hard thing to get. But as you move around the community here, and, you know, we all do it, right? Perceptions, we, someone looks a certain way or does a certain action, wears a certain kind of clothes, and A whole story gets built up about them, and we make it true and real, right? Don't believe everything you think. You know, have some spaciousness about it. Realize um, the impact of that and how it causes suffering for ourselves and for others. Really need to be paying attention to this. I like this quote from Jacob Needleman, who's a philosopher. He says, Our lives are what they are in large part because of the weakness and passivity of our attention. We are taken, our attention is taken, swallowed by our streams of automatic thought. We constantly disappear into our emotional reactions. We are taken by our fears and desires, our pleasures and pains, by our daydreams and imaginary worries. And being taken, we no longer exist as I myself hear, knowing the moment. We do not live our lives. We are lived and may eventually die without ever having awakened to what we really are, without ever having lived. Because we're just lost. Here we want to wake up. We want to be present for our lives. Not to get out of something, avoid something, but show up for experience, show up for ourselves, show up for others. So just like a computer, here's your chance to the tune-up utilities. See those old programs, those old things you haven't used for a while? They come up, and they will, right? Something from yesterday, six months ago, six years ago, 16, 60, however long you've had, a chance to just let go, not necessary anymore getting back the real freshness and newness of experience, more intimate, more alive, more connected, not just running out of our old habit patterns, our old conditioning, old thoughts and beliefs, beliefs, but really checking in what's what's true right now, what's true in this intimacy of this moment. So in this practice, I've been talking, calling it a lot mindfulness, but mindfulness, as I said, really is a foundation practice. There's a whole spectrum of practices that use mindfulness. 
And in our tradition, the, the ends of the spectrum on one end would be concentration practices, and we would do samatha or tranquility practices to cultivate that. That's where we use one object and steady the mind, very simple, often use the breath. And that kind of practice can really deepen into states of absorption called jhana. And even if it doesn't go that far, it can deepen to um, what's called uh, upachara samadhi, uh, access concentration or neighborhood concentration because it's close to absorption. And some teachers say that's all you need to deepen in meditation is that level of concentration. At the other end is vipassana, vipassana, insight meditation, to see clearly. And there we don't hold to any one object. We're open to the whole range of experience, a whole aliveness of the six sense doors. And we're curious about them. There's investigation. There's, there's a, a sense of what's happening. And this, uh, especially reflection or inquiry into the three characteristics, seeing how things are changing all the time. And if we hold on, we'll suffer, that there's nothing solid there. So these are kind of the ends of that spectrum. Most of us, most of the time, are somewhere in the middle where we're steadying the attention, using something simple like the breath and the body, but we need to know how to really open up to this aliveness, this vitality of all of the six sense doors, bringing this kind, relaxed, interested attention to everything that happens. And I love Greg did the flipping of the practices, that the most important practice is as you're going about your day here, in between times, in the dining room, in the shower, in the toilet, in the bathroom, in your room, that's where it's really important to practice. And then, you know, balance that with some walking and then lastly the sitting. But we're wanting to include everything. We steady enough using the breath, the body, sounds perhaps as, as, a, as a place to steady the attention. But knowing the wisdom is when can we open up? When can we be more inclusive? And that that's the direction this practice, vipassana, goes in. But we do that, we practice with, with the attitudes that we want to cultivate, wisdom and compassion. So I love that this kind, interested, relaxed attention is actually a long hand for wisdom and compassion. Kind is compassion, interested is wisdom, relaxed is compassionate and it's in the body. Um, and attention, that's the mind, knowing what's happening kind, interested, um, relaxed attention. This is what we're doing here. And it can sound so simple, and as you know, it's not easy. But to always come back to it being simple, if you ever find it's getting too complicated, everything I've said tonight, way too complicated, let it all go. Carol Wilson, one of our dear friends and colleagues, it often teaches, usually teaches this retreat. She's on sabbatical this year. We were talking about going on retreat, being on long retreat, and, you know, after you've just the purpose of being on retreat. And she said, you know, it's just to strengthen the habit of mindfulness. That's all we're doing. Not looking for any great experience, deep, powerful catharsis, you know, throwing everything out and starting new. We're strengthening the habit of mindfulness. And that is so powerful. That's life-changing, game-changing. 
to strengthen and cultivate the habit of mindfulness. So I want to finish with the words of Ajahn Chah, uh, who I mentioned earlier, Thai forest meditation master. As I see it, the mind is like a single point, the center of the universe, and mental states are like visitors who come to stay at this point for short or long periods of time. Get to know these visitors well. Become familiar with the vivid pictures they paint, the alluring stories they tell, to entice you to follow them. But do not give up your seat. It is the only chair around. If you continue to occupy it unceasingly, greeting each guest as it comes, firmly establishing yourself in awareness, transforming your mind into the one who knows, the one who is awake, the visitors will eventually stop coming back. If you give them real attention, how many times can these visitors return? Speak with them here and you will know every one of them well. Then your mind will at last be at peace. So let's let the words settle into silence for a moment. Thank you for your attention. We have about 35 minutes for walking until the last formal sitting of the day, 9 o'clock, where Greg will again be uh, training you in chanting the Karaniya Metta Sutta. Lovely way to end the evening, to come chant together. And Maybe last night, exhausted, couldn't make it. Really uh, encourage you to come tonight because he'll the first number of times he does call and response so that you get to learn the chant together. So if you have the energy, nine o'clock chanting. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.